Good morning, everybody. If you'll crack open your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1. My creativity was weak this week, uh, so I uh, stole this out of a hymn written by Top Lady. Foul lie to the fountain fly. What's interesting about this is that we've, we've been to a number of churches, as many Christians have, uh, throughout our married life. And um, it's strange that this is always the verse, verse 3, I believe it is, that seems to be removed from a lot of hymnals that they choose to only put a couple in there. Um, and this is one of my favorite lines. Foul lie to the fountain fly. I'd just like to read just verse 7. If you follow along this morning, it says this. In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. If you'll pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Your Word is power. Lord, we pray this morning, first and foremost, I pray that anything I say that should be forgotten would be quickly forgotten. The things that are important and need to be remembered, Lord, You would sear deep within us. Help us to reflect on these truths. We ask now by that work which is so mysterious to us, whereby the Spirit of God, you take the Word of God and apply it directly to our hearts. We give you this time and ask these things in Christ's name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. I am, yet what I am, none cares or knows. My friends forsake me like a memory lost. I am the self-consumer of my woes. They rise and vanish in oblivious host, like shadows in love's frenzied stifled throes. And yet I am, and live. These words were penned by British poet John Clare, somewhere around 1844, published in 1848. And the poem describes his struggle with self, with his identity. And its tenor echoes through the corridors of time, even into this room this morning. Man and woman, by and large, they struggle with wanting the world to know who they are. And we have a litany of resources made available to us to help with that. Social media exists, by and large, for us to give a small representation of ourselves, telling the world who we are. We give access to the, to the living world expressed in a page or a, a glimpse, a post, a tweet. We're trying to give the world some small picture of who we are, at least in that moment. I'm not attacking social media by any stretch of the imagination. I just wanted to use that to illustrate the times. We truly live in a world that is consumed by identity. If you think about it for a second, marketing, by and large, is aimed at yours and my desire to express our individual tastes and to make a statement to ourselves and to the world about who we are. Identity is the top issue in culture today. The debate over marriage is about recognition. It's about identity. The debate over gender is about identity. The debate's about debt identity. And today's culture will fight for identity issues in the streets and in the classrooms 
and even from the pulpit. And that's really our main aim this morning. What the cultural identity war has done to infiltrate the Christian church at large. And as we discuss the church this morning, please understand I'm speaking of the church universal, which we are also a part of. So we're talking about all the churches everywhere. So this morning, if you think with me for just a second, thousands upon thousands of pastors and preachers will stand behind pulpits and take a side on pressing issues in our culture. And in so doing, many will only further confuse the church. Now, that's not to say that pastors shouldn't teach what the Bible says about hot topics. They should. I'm one guy that believes wholeheartedly that a pastor needs to be telling us what the Scriptures say about this. The pulpit's not a place for communicating opinions. It's a place for communicating God's truth. And these issues must be addressed. But the church has to be careful how these issues are addressed and that they are addressed. Why? Because the Scriptures do address each one of these issues. So we need to understand that the issue of marriage is a decided issue in the Scriptures. It's, it's not that God is listening to us and realizing that our thought process is more righteous than His. And He's mulling over, maybe I had it wrong on this. No, God has decided what marriage is. Why? Because He made it. He created marriage. God's not scratching His head. He's not saying, oh, maybe I made a mistake. He knows what it is because He made it. Gender is a decided issue in the Bible. It's not something God is sitting there thinking about. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I, I put these ideas in people. No, it is decided. God knows what gender is, the same as, as you and I should. It's not up for debate. But the church today, today's church seems confused at best and compromised at worst. The church in 2023 is in a bit of an identity crisis. Every single week, churches all over the globe, every week, they are gathering together to decide how they want to be identified. And maybe that's not in a Sunday morning service. It certainly should not be with these social issues. But they're, they're gathering to, to ask questions like, should we change things up from what we're doing? Should we keep pews? Or should we maybe switch to some more comfy padded chairs? Should we continue to use the, the hymnal, or should we get away from that and add in some more contemporary music? Should we continue to recite Scripture together, or should we just have someone read the Scriptures to us? What are we going to do? Who are we going to be? Should the sermon have a slideshow? Or maybe not. Maybe it shouldn't. What should we do? Who do we want to be? Should we keep doing responsive readings, or should we switch that up? Should the pastor or preacher wear a suit and tie? Or t-shirt and jeans. Who do we want to be seen as? Or maybe the pastor should wear some strange uh, mix-up between the two. And beyond that, there's a litany of moral issues that the churches are deciding. Should we allow a divorced man to be our pastor? Should we change our bylaws to allow for more modern ideas? Where does our church stand on issues like abortion? These are very, very important questions, and churches are making decisions on these. What should be our church's public stance on BLM? Gay marriage. 
the transgender movement. All that to say, the church is at a crossroads every single day now. Why is that? Because the church is in identity crisis. 2023, we have never seen so much confusion come out of a place that professes to be the people of God. Every week, we are faced with these things. Now, I'm not saying that knowing where we stand on these issues is not a good thing. It's good for us to know we should. And our pastor ought to be telling us, and he, and he does. He tells us what the Bible says. That is extremely important. It's good for us to know what the church believes and why we believe it. That's kind of the point of the Great Commission, right? What did Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples, that's right, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. But there is a shift. A shift from stance on issues to identity. A shift from a statement of faith to labels. And here, you all and I stand in the midst of the struggle. For some perspective on this, this year, 1,500 churches in the United States will close their doors. Done. Just for some further perspective, by the end of the service today, no matter what time zone you're in, 29 churches in the United States will shut their doors. Not to open again. That local body of believers is done meeting there. This is a survey done in 2019. It has not changed much. Not 20 minutes from this building, you are the church, this is the building, amen? Not 20 minutes from here, one of those places. It's an empty building where a body of believers once met. And that's, this is one I know of. There's a lot of churches in the South. There's a Baptist church on every single corner. Sometimes there's two. And here we stand. That's an, that's an astounding number. 29 churches by the end of this service will close. And as we begin this morning... I want to start with just two questions. And I want to bring this home. What kind of church will Grace identify as? And what kind of Christian will you identify as? I pray that we uh, know the answer, we'll find the answer in our study this morning. More importantly, let's, let's draw that all, that all together. Where will our identity be? Well, this morning we are confronted with a wonderful passage of Scripture. I want everyone to see how the Apostle Paul is dealing with the identity of the church at Ephesus. Please uh, join me, and we're going to read a little bit larger of a section just so that we can have the context, and I'm going to make some, some, uh, some emphasizing here. So if you'll join me, chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will 
to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather to Himself in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. But we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Notice some key phrases that Paul keeps tossing out there for us. In Him, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. If you were to underline right now in your Bible, I understand that's sacred for some people. Some people don't want to write in their Bible. That's cool. If you do, go ahead and underline all those. Underline all those. If you're bold, point them out to your neighbor. If you're as bold as I am, underline them for your neighbor. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. What a beautiful picture of who the Christian is. All the nonsense attached to every other issue, every other title melts away when we're confronted with who Christ says we are. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is from Isaiah 2.22. So stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Of what account is he? God wants us to care what he thinks about us, what he says about us more than others. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning highlighting just one of the thoughts that we just read from Ephesians the implications of that truth for the Christian today, that is, everyone say me, that is, for the church today, and lastly for the world. And it is my prayer that this morning, being reminded of these simple truths, will stir within every Christian within earshot a renewed sense of Christian identity, a softened heart for the truth of the Scriptures, and a corporate rejoicing in what Christ has done. It's amazing. There are a lot of books that are being written on all kinds of issues right now. It has been years since there has been a book that's written for us just on who we are in Christ. Our sermon this morning has three points. Why is that? Because I'm a Baptist and that's what you get. So, this morning, if you are in Christ, you are, number one, redeemed. Number two, forgiven. And number three, recipients of grace. I'm going to read the passage just one more time. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Point number one. If this morning you are in Christ, if your identity is in Christ, Scripture says you are redeemed. But what does that mean? Redemption is kind of one of those words we sing about in hymns, we talk about, we throw it around all over the place, but for the most part, it kind of seems like it's disconnected from our daily walk. I'm not going to Greekmatize anyone this morning, but I am going to toss one Greek word out here because it's important. Apollutrosis. It actually means ransom in full. So we've been redeemed. From what? 
Well, our, our answer, if you ask any Christian, what have you been redeemed from? Typically, they're going to say sin, right? I've been redeemed from sin. I've been redeemed. And that's true. In Christ, we have been released from the bondage of sin. But our redemption is important, and we kind of have to understand the whole scope. So if for just a moment we can look at the entire Bible, all 66 books, and break it up into what I call the worldview ladder, that's just three headings, all right? In the beginning, we have creation. That's a heading all, all in and of itself. If you're going to talk with someone and they're going to question your faith, one of the things you've got to know is God created all things. He created all things good. That's a picture that we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That's number one in your worldview ladder. That's the first rung, creation. What's the second rung? Fall. God made all things this way, but we fell. We willingly chose to bite into that apple, or our first father did, and brought sin upon the human race, and that has affected all things everywhere. That's number two. So if we have Genesis 1 and 2, which is about creation, and we have Genesis 3, which is about the fall, many of us would probably agree, man, it seems like a lot more of the Old Testament is the fall too. But in Genesis 3.15, God says something to Eve, the hope in the midst of the curse. She would have an offspring, and that offspring would stomp the head of the serpent. The serpent would snap at his heel, and he crushed the head of the serpent. And on Calvary's hill, Jesus Christ's cross was driven into the place of the skull. And on that hill, he defeated that serpent. So we have the entire rest of the Bible that talks about this massive story of redemption. What God is doing to restore all things, to redeem mankind from this curse. If you break up the Bible that way, Boy, it's so easy just to find things. And there are a lot of other subheadings. I know a lot of theologians put different ideas out there and they, they throw different things in. And I'm not saying those are wrong. I'm just saying for me, a simple guy who gets really distracted, uh, I really like just those headings. We have creation, we have fall, and then we have the whole story of what God is doing to redeem. So Genesis 4 to Revelation 22 is the story of redemption. It's how God is going to and in the process of redeeming all things. You say, Jason, what in the world does that have to do with my identity or Grace's identity? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because God has brought this great plan of redemption to fruition in Christ. And as you trace your finger through account after account after account in the Old Testament, we see that God is through His sovereign attendance and interaction into the affairs of mankind working out his plan for redemption to bring Messiah into the world in his timing. And there's a lot of, I'm going to be careful how I word this here, I don't want to be a heretic, seemingly close calls. Are there close calls for God Almighty? All God's people said, no. Seems like they're close calls to us. Think about that for a second. So if God is going to redeem humanity and this chosen people goes into Egypt, and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, wants to destroy all male children, which means there will be no line to bring in Messiah to the world. Something's got to be done. And it just so happens that there are some nursemaids that refuse to follow Pharaoh's command. Just so happens 
God blesses them, and Israel is saved. Nation rises up after nation against Israel throughout their history. And while God uses these nations to discipline his children, they are never allowed to destroy them. Because God will eventually bring Messiah into the world. One of my most favorite stories from the Old Testament accounts, the wicked queen Athaliah wipes out the entire royal family, all of the males that could possibly take the throne from her, except the one she forgot who happens to be an infant, and this really brave, courageous priest goes and collects him up and takes him into the temple, um, along with her stepdaughter who saves this baby. They put the baby in the only place that it just so happens Athaliah won't go because she doesn't worship Jehovah. She worships false gods. And within that place, there just so happens to be the dressed armor of David the king from times past. And they just so happen to preserve this child because without him, the line of Judah dies, which means Jesus does not come. And we read that and say, wow, what a close call. God says, you think so? In the book of Esther, Haman's plan is to wipe out the Hebrews. Done. If this goes through... Messiah doesn't come. And it just so happens that a beautiful girl is queen. She was brought to that place, as her uncle Mordecai says, for such a time as this, and Israel is spared. Why do I mention these accounts? Because they're just a fraction of the events that occur in the plan for redemption. And today, if you are in Christ, you are experiencing that redemption that release from bondage. Notice in our passage this morning, two things about this redemption. The first thing is, Scripture doesn't say this is some far-off thing. It doesn't say that this is something that you will eventually come to and eventually have, you will eventually attain. It says, in Him we, what's that word? Have redemption. It's a present reality. Now, this is not some self-help plan. The Scriptures are not telling us six steps to get our best life now. It's pretty clear that even your preferred translation of the Bible, if it's not this, doesn't mess with this reality. I need to restate this as plainly as possible, especially if you struggle with this idea. In Him, we have redemption. Colossians 1.13 echoes this reality. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So first off, we need to recognize that in this present possession, for those that have embraced Christ for the forgiveness of sins, called, chosen, drawn, saved, redeemed. It's ours. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are redeemed. You have redemption Second, notice how Scripture tells us it was attained. I'm going to read the verse just one more time for context. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Matthew 20, 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Grace Community Church uh, join me this morning. Hold your hands in front of you and take a look. Just everybody do it. Just take a look at your hands. Look at the front. Look at the back. And I'm going to tell you this right now. Your hands tell a story. 
I'm not doing palm reading here, so this might be my last time ever getting an opportunity to preach. But hey, thank you for allowing me to be a member for a couple years. Look at your hands. Just look at them for a second. They are attended with all kinds. So the younger you are, the smoother they are, the nicer they are. The older you get, they're, they're calloused. Some people have scars. Some people's knives slipped when they were butchering chickens. You have wounds, wrinkles. Some people, it hurts to open your hands. It's signs of things that you've done. Your hands tell a story of the work that you've done in your life. Look at the record that time has placed on your hands. If we were to take an inventory of the room, the stories we could hear, met some people missing parts of their hand, the stories that are tied to that, it all gives evidence of the things that you've done and the work that you've done and all of those scars and the wrinkles and the time and the callous equal nothing toward your salvation. It was not attained by anything that you or I have done, but through His blood. Not one second of the work that we have done to leave those scars, wrinkles, stiff joints have contributed at all to our redemption. Not one event, as godly as that event may have been, gave you one scar any more than a life of hard work. They didn't contribute anything. None of those things contributed to your redemption at all. As the line that I stole the title for the sermon says from Top Lady's hymn, which we'll sing in, in closing, Foul lie to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Redemption was not secured by my hands any more than it was secured by yours. It was secured by His. Amen? Amen. What does our passage say? In Him we have redemption. How? Through His blood. On this, Matthew Henry says, this redemption we have in Christ and this remission through blood, the guilt and stain of sin, could be no otherwise removed than by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, we have redemption. Point number two. If you are in Him, or as the Puritans would say, if you be in Christ, you're forgiven. You have forgiveness. Now you may be thinking, Jason, aren't you kind of saying the same thing? Like sin we're getting rid of? Like isn't redemption kind of the same thing? Aren't we splitting hairs now? Craig Keener writes, uh, while the idea of redemption and forgiveness is closely tied similarly to that of wisdom and insight, they're not the same thing. So while redemption is payment in our place, forgiveness is our pardon. So if you think about the illustration that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, you've heard, it's you're standing before a judge with an unpayable debt and someone walks into the back and says, I am paying it all. That is redemption. And then the judge taking his gavel and slamming it down and saying, clear, that is forgiveness. While they live side by side, they are two different things. In Christ this morning, if you are in Christ, you have forgiveness. It's a present reality. And you know the biggest struggle for most Christians? They don't feel it. Well, I just don't feel forgiven. You know, 
I messed up this week and I said this, did this, thought this. So where do we automatically always return? God, I will show up to church every single day this week. I'll even volunteer to do something. Just please make this right. And in so doing, in our hearts, we hang Christ on the cross all over again. Either what he did was good enough to attain it or nothing is. How we feel about forgiveness really doesn't matter. I pray this morning after this sermon that we're rejoicing in the forgiveness that scriptures say we have. Our feelings just seem to get in the way. You know, one of the most, I've said this for years, one of the most difficult things to be as a Christian is a consistent one. Like we want to believe these certain things, but then if that's going to affect our lives or the lives of our children or grandchildren or a friend, then all of a sudden, well, I don't know how I feel about that. Our feelings get in the way as our pastor always says. But take comfort this morning. God doesn't care how you feel. It's true whether you like it or not. Scriptures say we have redemption if we are in Christ, and if we are in Christ, we have forgiveness. And point number three, in Him, you are recipients of grace. By what measure do we have these things? Redemption and forgiveness? Like, like how much? Like how far does that go? And we live in a, a world of values. And one amazing thing is when someone finds something and they think it's worth something and they realize it's not worth others or to others how much it's worth to me, even almost as amazing as the Antique Roadshow when someone pulls this dusty thing uh, out of a wall of lath and plaster and they say man look i wonder how much this is worth up in new york where we're from there was a person that lived at the end of our road and they were remodeling the attic of their house and um they found a signed poster of a famous baseball player from the 20s it ended up being worth enough to pay off their house and buy them two harleys you don't even know what stuff's worth we live in a world of values we want to know how much things are worth because things have value to us. Some of the things that you have are valuable to you and no one else. We moved into our house. There was a plaque on the wall from 1962 from the woman who lived there's father recognizing him for the work he did for the community. So you move in and you see this plaque and it, it kind of like almost becomes sacred, right? Like, well, I can't just throw it away. What am I supposed to do? So we thought about it, took it off the wall, kind of saved it, and we talked to someone who knew the woman who had the house before us, and she said every single person that that plaque was valuable to is gone. It's amazing to think about that for a second. It's worth so much, but it's worth so much to you. Some people have lots of junk. We have stuff, don't we? And to us, it might be worth the world. But to others, maybe not. Why do I say all this? Sentimental value is, is kind of important to us. Monetary value, why we bring possessions to people to have them evaluated. But both of those have limits. In Christ, redemption and forgiveness are not rationed out. As if we have some stingy God that's like, yeah, a little bit for you, a little bit for you, a little bit for you. I have an aunt that uh, lives in the South. Um, we would go and visit her at times, and it was always amazing because she would always want to feed everybody, because that's what you do. What was in this pot was good, 
but there usually wasn't a lot of it, and what was there was what there was to go around. So she'd make things like a pot full of mustard greens and toss two strips of bacon in there. Whatever bacon you tasted, you tasted, but she was going to make sure you at least got a little. She would make for breakfast two scrambled eggs, a very thinly sliced strip of bacon, or excuse me, ham, that was diced up, thrown in there, stirred up into a big old pot of grits. Now everybody gets a little taste of what's in there. Spread out. My point in saying this is the pot was a pot of poverty. It wasn't full of caviar, it wasn't full of lobster tails, and it was not never-ending. If there were four of us there, we got a belly full of grits. If there were 12 of us there, we got a small portion. My aunt would dish out of the pot of poverty. It says in the Scriptures, let me read again verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the not poverty of his grace, riches of his grace. God is not scraping out the bottom of some pot to offer you redemption. It's out of his wealth that he gives these things to us. How amazing. What's the limit on that? It's the limit that God set. What's God's limit? None. God isn't rationing, he isn't metering out. So everyone that he saves gets a little taste. He isn't giving redemption and forgiveness according to his limited means. The passage says according to his riches, according to the riches of his grace. You and I are recipients of that. This morning, if you are in Christ, you are a recipient of his redemption, of his forgiveness, and of his grace. Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood through faith. If you're in Him, you're a recipient of redemption, forgiveness from his storehouses, from the riches of his grace. That is so amazing. And the best part is one sermon, really one verse, one tiny little chunk about who Scripture tells us you are, where your identity is. One tiny little sliver of what the Bible says about who you are in Christ. Maybe if more Christians realized who they were in Christ, more believers would stop trying to find their identity in other things. Like a job, a house, a car, a people group, some ideal. Maybe instead of quarreling over worldly issues and personalities, we join together on Sunday morning and just rejoice in who Christ is and who we are in Christ. As we're sitting under a steeple this morning, and there are many churches that are sitting under a steeple this morning, at least 29 of them according to studies, they won't be meeting there next Sunday. And uh, the labels that are so important become a stumbling block, and for some, they become wrecking balls. This world has been whittling away at perceptions of objectivity for decades now, I would say centuries, 
But at least for those in this room, we know it's been happening for decades. 2020 was the weirdest year of my entire life. So many things changed. I'm raising my children in a world that I didn't really bargain to. I'm glad God knows what's happening here. But it's a strange time. We've seen such a decline in the past few years. So much so that the last study that was done last year says that of all Christians in the United States, only 1% of those under 30 have a biblical worldview. You say, well, I'm glad I'm not part of their group. You raised them. The next age up, 4%. The next age up, these three groups that are still on the earth, 8%. Things are going downhill in a hurry. And I attribute that to people not knowing who they are in Christ. They don't know the riches that they have in forgiveness and redemption. Preachers sharing their opinion instead of preaching the word. It's like, preacher, don't tell me your opinions on BLM or other things you've experienced that make you a better man. Tell me who I am in Jesus. Tell me what he expects of me in his word. Give me his standard. Show me the clear teachings of scripture. How someone in Christ deals with social issues. Teach me what the Bible says about my identity. Show me Christ. Christians, the world needs us to show them a picture of the truth that we profess we believe. If we are in Christ, preach it and live it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And I, above all else, probably, especially this morning, thank You for Your patience. Thank You that You are God and You are in control. Lord, if there are some in here that have not been called yet by You, Lord, I pray that this would be the hour of salvation. Their redemption would never feel as close as it does this morning. And Lord, for some, we've given in to a lot of worldly things. Help this morning to be a reset of our thinking. Help us to lean in on who you say we are. And Lord, there, there are some that know and love you, and Lord, their affections are stirred even more by what they've heard this morning. Lord, I pray that you draw them even closer. Help them to know even more of You. Lord, we thank You for the time that we live in because even though we don't know what we're doing, You do. You've given us a solid rock to stand on. His name is Jesus. So Lord, would You take these words this morning and drive them home. Help us to live as the people You've called us to be. And we thank You for all these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.